0: Hi, I'm Rail Bricker and I'll be one of your hosts for the Business Excellence Podcast. Hi, and I'm Lindsay Adams, I'm the co-host. And together we're going to be talking about what makes up business excellence. And we believe that you can never be perfect, all you can be is excellent. And in our businesses and in our lives we want to achieve excellence and that's why this is the Business Excellence Podcast. Welcome to today's Business Excellence Podcast. With me, as usual, is my co-host from Brisbane, Lindsay Adams. Hi there. I am on the line and excited today. And with us is our special guest, Dion Ranjay, owner of Stone Barn, Wedding Venue, Truffle Farmer, Truffle Developer, and General, all round nice <laughs>
1: Hi everybody. Nice and welcome. Welcome, Dion. <laughs>
0: Thanks. So, Dion, tell me, you you bought Stone Barn as a block of dirt, you know, 300-odd k's south of Perth, about
1: 18 years ago. Tell us the story and the motivation behind that. Well, it was nothing to do with business, really. Um, we were holidaying in the southwest, and I just fell in love with the Manjimup area, beautiful little rivers, clean water, forests, everything that uh, you would dream about if you had a little farm. And it was a lot cheaper at the time than Margaret River, so that wasn't an option for any kind of holiday getaway. And after doing a lot of camping and uh, staying in the local campsites, we found a property that was inexpensive because it was a ex-bluegum plantation. It was worse than a bluegum plantation because it had just been harvested. But it suited us well because it was on the Warren River, bordered by the Quinanup Brook and pretty much surrounded by state forests. So the motivation to buy it was just to buy a piece of land that uh, – was aesthetically beautiful or had the potential that wasn't a flat piece of agricultural land, which would have cost a lot more even back then. Um, it had fairly steep slopes and so on. And the motivation was to give our kids a place where they could get dirty and splash and swim into the river and be kids and realize there's more to life than just sitting on screens in a wow. cyber
0: wow. So being an old Boy Scout, Dion, I'm, I'm, this is really resonating with me. I've camped and swam in creeks. That would be just magic. But what? how on earth did you come up with this business idea then? You created a, a wedding venue and then a truffle
1: farm. Like what? Yeah. Tell us about that. Yeah. A few moments of madness, I think, you know. Um, I, I had a background of tourism in southern Africa and because i had a basic understanding of of that world and enjoyed a little bit of building and doing your own thing i you know we had to build infrastructure on the property there was nothing no roads no power no sewage uh, no water so the first thing we did is find a dam site point the bulldozer in the right direction and build the dam. And following that, uh, it's it seemed like a good idea to build sort of a bed-and-breakfast boutique hotel. Um, we had a colleague of my wife's who lived in Paris, France, for pretty much her whole adult life, who was an architect, um, design it, and we built it hoping to make it viable as as an accommodation, a short-term accommodation, kind of bed and breakfast. But uh, that wasn't to be as history passed. But it just seemed like it would be a, a viable way to develop the property.
0: Okay. So so what did you build? What happened first? You, you built a, a wedding venue, didn't you? Yes. Yeah, so the,
1: the wedding, it wasn't a wedding venue originally, and I think – one of the uh, lessons is that you've got to be open to change, and if uh, one plan doesn't work, try another. Um, we we built it as a bed and breakfast. It's uh, eight suite, small, two story, very European looking um, building which had commercial kitchen and uh, you know all the facilities you would you would uh, ponder in a place like that. And it was sort of on the edge of the lake that we'd created. So it was very pretty, but uh, because of the low number of rooms, it was difficult to to make it pay as a business when you have to employ, you know, managers and chefs and waiters and everything else uh, need a very high occupancy. And we learned that a little bit painfully over time. And uh, the coincidence of the wedding venue was that um, we we had a, a lady who looked after our kids when they were toddlers and she'd moved to Sydney met a West Australian line, called us one day saying, could she use the venue for her wedding? And we said, absolutely, put a good karma, um, gave her the venue as a um, gift, a wedding gift. They had their wedding and uh, being youngsters and in marketing and so on. It spread on social media and before we knew it, we had a bunch of calls of other people inquiring about the wedding venue, and it just naturally became a much easier model, where because we lived in Perth and, you know, up is three and a half hours drive away, we rented, in essence, still do rent out the venue, don't provide any of the services, so you know, catering and celebrants and everything else you need for a wedding. So people are able to rent or book the accommodation. The wedding party stays there. We have weddings up to 100 people and uh, they organize everything. So they bring their own caterers and they have control over the cost of all of those things. And uh, it works well for everybody, and it's still working tremendously well and has done so through the last crazy difficult year because you can have your wedding ceremony down at the river or, you know, we've got cleaned out areas in the actual forest. So outdoors is good as it happens.
0: And I mean, yeah, I've, I've been to Stone Barn, and so it's quite a magnificent venue. But you were saying that a lot of wedding parties sort of go down there and rent it for two or three days or four days at a time. And so they have a bit of a a family gathering as well. And I think that's been part of the success as well.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So we have a minimum of two nights um, and people often stay for four or five nights. Um, which gives them a time to sort of set up and be with their family or the wedding party and relax a little bit afterwards. And the advantage is you could play music as loudly as you ever wish or scream until the cows came home and nobody would know because you're very <laughs> far from the closest neighbour. You don't have to switch off the lights at midnight.
0: So, So 16 years ago, you embarked on another trail of madness and planted 500 trees or thereabouts?
1: Uh, 2,000 actually, trees. yeah, okay. initially about 700. And then um, close close on six months later, continued and got up to 2,000. That was also something that was not terribly well calculated. Um, we had to get bulldozers in to push out all the stumps, and, um, It so happened that the soil was pretty good quality carry loam. And, you know, the only thing I knew about truffles was having tasted one when I was a young backpacker going around Europe and then starving for a few weeks following that because I'd blown my budget. (laughs) (laughs) A colleague of mine who had worked uh, at the CSIRO asked, you know, he was a keen hiker and he said, oh, no, the area where you bought your property, um, have you, do you know anything about truffles? And I said, well, I know what truffles are. And he introduced me to a colleague of his who was sort of the doing of truffles in Australia at the time. And he said, well, this guy has planted a managed investment scheme, a big trufflery in the area. And he believes that it will be a very successful truffle-growing area. So we really, you know, we looked at grapes and that didn't look like a good idea. It was romantic but not practical. We then looked at olives and discovered you can stick them in the desert and give them a bit of fertiliser and water and get olives. So it was pointless using a high rainfall, very fertile area. And uh, by default, we thought, well, we'll end up with a, an oak forest, and that's not a bad thing for future generations. So we planted the trufflery with the help of the truffle professor, not, not thinking for a moment we would ever get a truffle. In fact, the managed investment scheme had uh, just found as we started planting post our crazy, not very Calculated decision. They found their first truffle, so there was one truffle in all of Manjimup when we planted.
0: So, what's your yield today? Are you are you willing to share those numbers with us, like compared to way back when?
1: Well, it's it's multiplied many, many, many times. But having said that, I think it's you know it is a business that, as I as I always like to say, has a very Deep valley of death. So the the time between you putting in your investment and getting a payback is fairly large. You got to wait a while. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but having said that, once you you if you are successful, then the payback is handsome, and you know we've we've close to doubled. And sometimes triple their quantities year on year. Wow! Um, and also have a very high percentage of trees that are productive. So the trick is getting as many trees switched on or producing truffle. Because once a tree produces a truffle, it'll continue to produce truffles for the rest of its life, and that could be a hundred years if it's a, wow. a huge oak. Um. So every year, still 15, 16 years down the track, we're getting more trees that are producing for the first time. Um, last season, we had uh, 54.8% of our trees, which is exceptionally high. I, I haven't heard of another tree on the planet that has that number of trees actually producing truffles. This year it's higher, but we haven't quite uh, uh, finished counting and working out the new statistic. But year on year, new trees start producing and we're probably the third biggest private, um, privately owned truffle producer of the Melanosporum truffles, which is in essence everything in the up area. Um, in the country. So there are bigger managed investment schemes that are producing bigger quantities now, but we've done exceptionally well for, you know, a business that was just a bit of a thought bubble, I guess. <laughs> well, that's a, it's a
0: fantastic story. And and so that takes us to the end of the part one of the story. So that we'll continue in a second Podcast with part two of the story, which is the farm is set up, the wedding venue is rented out, the truffles are slowly being produced for a pretty short period of the year, six or eight
1: weeks, you harvest? Um, Three months, but the production is in a bell curve. It starts in June fairly slowly, and it runs through winter, sort of peaks um, middle towards the end of July, and then tapers off again. So all of the fresh stuff is harvested with dogs and cleaned and graded and packed and shipped pretty much on the same day and it would be on tables in restaurants in New York or Tokyo or wherever else within 24 to 36 hours that's fantastic so fresh product
0: yeah so that's a fantastic story So that brings us to the end of part one. We will see you on the next edition of the podcast with Lindsay Adams, Railbricker, and our guest, Dion Ranjay. We look forward to seeing you on the next episode of the Business Excellence Podcast.